Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have Oren J. Sofer. He is the author of Say What You Mean, a mindful approach to nonviolent communication. He leads retreats and workshops on mindful communication at meditation centers and educational settings around the United States. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Al. Really happy to be here. So very interesting book, very detailed. Um, I, I took some notes on some points I'd like to kind of take you through, things you've mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, but first, I want to start off with what led you to write a book about this? Was there, what was your personal experience with communication that piqued your interest here? Yeah. Um, so personally, I, I started meditating when I was quite young. I was about 19 and my life was falling apart the way that can happen in your late teens and early 20s, you know, just kind of ordinary young adult angst and stuff. And uh, so, you know, I was seeking some some clarity, some relief from emotional pain, kind of just getting direction in life. And what I found after a few years of meditating was that even though I was having pretty meaningful experiences inwardly, while my eyes were shut and I was sitting alone by myself, <laughs> as soon as I opened my mouth or had a disagreement with a colleague or a coworker, forget about family, it all went out the window. So, you know, so I realized, uh, you know, this meditation is is only as good as it is in my daily life. You know, I need to be able to use the the patience and compassion and kindness and awareness, wisdom, all of these qualities. If they're not showing up in my relationships, then what what good is it? Um, so I found uh, that the communication practice was like a bridge between the inner transformation of contemplative practice and the rest of my life. And in particular, what I found was that having been meditating already for a few years, I took to the communication skills so quickly. It was like my mind was able to do what the communication teachers were telling me very easily because I knew how to identify what I was feeling or what mattered to me. I had developed the capacity to be a little bit non-reactive to a strong emotion. So uh, I found that the combination of mindfulness practice and communication was was like a, a home a home run. And so I really want, you know, part of my part of my life's work is is sharing this combination with people because communication is so central to our quality of life. And yeah. Yeah, no, there's, you know, and I was just thinking while you were talking about this juicy part in your book, so many juicy parts where you give examples on how to rephrase common things you might get into a situation with someone in order to rephrase, like rephrasing needs in the positive Mm -hmm. and owning things instead of the negative. And and we will get to that. And I love that. But one of the things I want to start off with, which I loved is you mentioned in the book, a friend who teaches mindfulness for incarcerated youth. And he was saying that some of these, you know, kids have, have gotten, you know, sentences that, you know, are combined a hundred years or whatever. And I guess he asked them, how long did you think about the actual crime you actually committed before you got here? And most of the answers were like two minutes. Right. And so one of the things that I've noticed with myself, because in your book, I, I'm probably more of the, 
um, I have no problem with conflict, but, but the, well, but the problem would be is that I need to be careful on this send, as I like to say, I, I do need to think a minute or two because I will just speak. So part of my practice is really taking a breather, right? Be careful on Mm -hmm. the send. Let's think this over before we write that email. Are you just an ego right now? (laughs) Are you going to regret that later? You know? And so um, maybe we could just start, start there on the power of pace and I know we'll probably dance around. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that story is, is actually, um, uh, adult inmates were the ones who had oh, <laughs> combined. So he's teaching young people, but using the story from adults in prison, basically saying, you know, this group of guys who were in prison for long times, you know, the total of their sentences added up to hundreds of years, but combined the amount of time they thought about it before they committed the crime that got them in there was less than two minutes. And so that was the kind of impetus for understanding the importance of having the capacity to respond instead of reacting. And that's one of the one of the main benefits of mindfulness is that it gives us that little bit of space between an initial reaction and our our what we say or do next. And so like one of the core principles uh, at the heart of contemplative practice and, and also communication is that the more aware we are, in our lives, the more choice we have. And so, so the question that, you know, you're sort of bringing us to here is, is how do we access that awareness in the flow of a conversation or an email exchange where there's a lot happening? Then there are ideas and emotions and, you know, the history of our relationship. And so there are all kinds of very concrete tools that I, I share in the book for how to develop more present moment awareness while speaking and listening. And you mentioned, you mentioned two of them. One is pausing and it doesn't need to be a long pause. Even just like half a breath can give us enough time to consider, okay, is this going to be helpful? Do I really want to, as you said, do I really want to hit send or is it better to let this one cool off and check back tomorrow? So, you know, like one breath can change what we say next. And, and that can make, you know, it's like something we can say in like two or three seconds can take weeks or months to clean up in a relationship. Yeah. You know, you have some really good examples in the book and I know we're going to dance around, but about, you know, ask for what you need and the way to rephrase it and owning things. And, you know, um, not sure exactly the way that you phrased it, but something to the effect of, you know, like for example, um, uh, well, I had a friend who was um, very upset her dog had died and she felt her boyfriend wasn't giving her enough, you know, empathy or sympathy or, you know, she really needed extra love and attention and she wasn't getting it. And so she said, you know, you're you're not doing this or that or the other. And I said, well, did you ever ask him for it? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you could just start and say, hey, you know what? I'm so upset. The dog thing. I'm so miserable. You know, one of the loves of my life. I just can you I just need extra snuggles mm-hmm. and like affection lately. Can you do that for me? I said, 
said, because I'm sure he would be happy to do that, but he probably just wasn't intuitive enough to know. And now you're angry at him for not being intuitive enough. Yeah. But again, what a what a common mis- misunderstanding, right? Yeah. So we we can't always guess that the, we can't be mad at the person for not giving us what we want if we have not told them. And that's what I love about your book: say what you mean. Right, right, right. <laughs> or or if we don't even know, and that's and that's the thing is like a lot of the times we're just feeling frustrated or upset or angry or irritated, and we haven't taken the time to actually look and say, okay, what do I actually need here? What's important to me? And so, you know, what you're pointing to, even though it's, it's a little bit of, um, kind of a, an, an ordinary daily life example, it's, it's actually illustrating a pretty deep rooted pattern that most of us have absorbed from our families, our society, our culture, which is that when our needs aren't met, when something doesn't work for us on some level, our habit is to blame the other person, right? And and if we step back and look at it, it's a really backwards counterproductive strategy. Like, you know, so in your example, you know, your friend wants more affection and connection and time and attention. How useful of a strategy is it to blame one's partner and say, you're so selfish, you don't care about me, right? It just starts a fight that didn't need to be started. <laughs> yeah, just... Exactly. Yeah. And so people tend to be more responsive if we're able to identify clearly like what it is that matters to us, not just what we want, which is like, I want you to do this. That often, if we only focus on the particular request or strategy that we have that we want the other person to do, that can go either way because... When we're fixated on needing someone to do something specific, oftentimes people will resist because we enjoy choice and autonomy. So if you if you come to me and you're like, Oren, I want you to do this exact thing at this time, it's like, well, you know, uh, what about all these other things I've got going on? But if you can tell me why that's important to you, what the ultimate goal or aim is for you, now I have a reason to actually care. Because it's you're framing it in terms of something that that I can understand that I also value, and then if the particular you know idea or proposal that you have doesn't work for me, we have more options to figure it out because we've actually identified what it is that's most important. Yeah, and you really detail this too in interpersonal communication when it comes to um, like not just what you need and want, but you had so many good examples. I'm trying to think of one specific where. Um, so I, I, yeah, yeah, I can ahead. I can tell a, I can tell a story that illustrates this really really well in terms of the the sense of personal clarity and empowerment uh, that comes from from making this key distinction that we're talking about between what we want, which in this training of communication we call our strategies, and why we want it, the deeper needs or values underneath. So this one. Um, One workshop participant uh, was on their way home from a workshop, driving in a car, and they reached for a cigarette. And as they're reaching for a cigarette, they remember this this teaching, this concept that they just learned that, you know, part of what makes us human is that we're motivated to meet basic fundamental needs that are shared, that are universal. So they pause. They're like, okay, if, if this stuff is true, if this actually works, then my wanting to light up and smoke a cigarette is I'm trying to meet some needs here. Okay, well, what needs am I trying to meet? And so I thought about it and they recognized, you know, I want to take a break. I, I want to take my mind off things and, and relax. 
And in that moment of seeing clearly what it is they actually wanted to relax, to take a break, they recognize, man, I've got far better ways of doing that than smoking cigarettes and destroying my health. And they quit smoking. So if we don't- Right, because they're getting to the root of why they even reached for it. Exactly, exactly. And I know, you know, many, many people today, given the the kinds of pressures that we experience in modern life, the level of alienation and disconnection have all kinds of coping mechanisms, whether it's food or internet addiction or, you know, you name it. It's like if we if we are unable to investigate and look clearly and identify what is it I'm actually longing for here? What is this doing for me or trying to do for me? If we, if we can't identify that, we are bound to continue repeating the same behavior because we don't know why we're doing it. We don't have any other options. But as soon as we can identify what it is we're actually really wanting, like, oh, I just ate that half a, you know, half a pint of ice cream because I really want some comfort and uh, I, I want to treat myself to something you know, because uh, I've been working so hard, I need to relax. It's like, oh, well, I have other ways to find comfort and relaxation now that I'm aware that that's what I actually want. Right. And this sort of goes hand in hand with also, I love your discussion. I guess what I was trying to get at earlier is sometimes when someone on the other end of the conversation, you know, or in a conversation with you says something that hurts your feelings, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. we want to react or say, you know, you're a, you're a, you're an a-hole or, you know, mm-hmm. okay, we have mm-hmm. those reactive thoughts and the ego, but I love how you're, you give examples of trying to bridge that by saying, you know, when you say that, it makes me feel like, right. Can you kind of detail some of the way, you know, that, cause that's mm-hmm. a really interesting thing to get at too, is mm-hmm. it, because that opens up the conversation instead of starting a battle. Right. Right. So this is another one of those places, Al, where like our, it's so fascinating because the ways that we think and perceive a relationship or a situation, um, are often just, they're like not conscious and then it shows up in our words. So even saying something like, you know, when you say that it makes me feel, there's this entanglement, this kind of Mm -hmm. assumption that we make that actually, you know, your actions or words are the cause of my feelings. And that keeps us entangled in what I talk about in the book is the blame game, right? It's like, it's your fault, you should do it differently and now we're arguing, whereas, when we shift our perspective, what we what we can see and start to understand is that our feelings, our emotions, they're stimulated often by other people's behavior. But the most direct cause is our own needs, our own values are what matters to us, right? Because we only feel things because we care about something. You know, if you didn't care about that relationship or your, you know, sense of dignity or whatever it is, if you didn't care about something, you wouldn't feel any emotions about it. So our feelings are information that that point back to this deeper level of our experience as human beings, of our our deeper needs and, and values. So when something doesn't work for us in our environment and we feel some emotions about that, what we want to be able to do is actually consider, okay, what matters to me here? What, what is it that I'm actually wanting? What is it that I'm, that I'm needing here? And if it's more respect or consideration um, or kindness, then okay, we, we can identify that. And then we can, we can share, express that to the other person, taking responsibility for how we're feeling by connecting it back to what's important to us. You know, when you, when you said that, I, I felt 
I felt kind of shocked and and a little bit hurt because, you know, in my professional relationships and even my personal relationships, I, I really like to be treated with with kindness and a sense of of respect and gentleness. And and then the, the key part there, if we just stop there, even though we're naming what's important for us, the other person's probably going to hear blame. So the right. key so the key part is being able to let the other person know what we would like them to do or say now, just as, a, as an idea to move things forward. So we want to make a, a clear request to say something like, you know, could you tell me more about what was going on for you when you said that? I really want to understand. Or, you know, maybe we want them to listen. We want them to hear what the effect was. And so we might ask, you know, um, can you understand why I would respond that way? Why that would be difficult for me to hear? Right. And so we're giving the other person um, a, a potential solution or strategy in the moment to say, look, like, let's let's work on this. Here's an idea for how we could how we could understand each other better. Yeah. And I also love the way you um, expressed to people where someone's like, hey, you know, you're not listening. Right. Or, <laughs> you know, where, where someone's in that situation, they don't feel like the other person's listening, even if the other person is. But you had a couple of great responses that are alternates, you know, than the usual for the person on the other end. And I really loved one of them. And it, it was something to the effect of, well, you know, I am listening, but what can I do differently to to make you feel heard? Or uh, right. there was not. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you voiced it, but it was just so great because even the person who's being attacked by the person who might be the one that's like coming to you as a friend to talk about something and, you know, yeah. they're they're in a mood and they're kind of lashing out. You can diffuse yeah. that and not yeah. not throw fire on it by these these ways. If you could go through a few of those, you know, those totally. nuances are important. Yeah, it's it's so freeing when we can start to hear other people's complaints blame and judgments as being about them instead of taking it personally, right? So um, Marshall Rosenberg, who was the the founder of nonviolent communication, which is where a lot of these tools that we're discussing come from, you know, one of the things that he used to say, which I love is he said, never listen to what people think about you. You'll live longer and enjoy your life more. <laughs> and, so, and so what he means there is he doesn't mean ignore people. He means don't listen to the story that they're telling about you or what you did or what's wrong with you or how you should have listened to what's in their heart. Listen to what they're actually saying or what they mean to say rather than the words on the surface. So when someone says you're not listening or you don't care, they're expressing their pain, right? They're expressing some unmet need. So the, 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 the principle here is that all of our judgments and blame are expressions, often tragic expressions, because they backfire, ex expressions of our unmet needs. So when someone says you're not listening, it's like this Aikido move. Instead of taking it personally and resisting or fighting back, we just transform it and turn it around. It's like, oh, wow, it sounds like you don't feel heard. What could I do or say that would help you to feel more understood right now? I love right? that. Yeah, or if just, someone I says- I love that. That's, yeah. I just want everyone to like, that is such a- you're just, it's just a couple of word choices mm -hmm. that make the whole conversation better and probably will calm down and enable the other person to receive and give as well what they want to share. Exactly. And what's so, what's essential here is that, and I say this again and again in the book, is that it's actually not about what we say. Because we can, you know, we can like use the right, quote, right words 
and still not produce the effect that we're hoping for. It's really about where we're coming from inside because so much of communication is is nonverbal. It's in the tone of our voice. It's in our body language. It's in those really subtle cues of micro expressions that are like just below the surface of consciousness, but that still register. So the, the key shift here that allows us to do this, to not take it personally and turn it around and, and be like, wow, it sounds like you're feeling really upset and you'd like some more understanding. Can you tell me more? Um, the key shift here is the willingness and desire to genuinely want to understand. Mm. And, and this is the, this is one of the most powerful intentions that we can have in a conversation because the, the currency of communication the, the like fundamental unit of communication is meaning. We are trying to send and receive messages. So, so in order to do that, we want to understand, we want to hear. So if we can approach a conversation or another person with the sincere intention to understand, that will start to shape our words, how we respond, how we show up. And the other person generally feels that. And when someone, when someone really gets that we want to hear them, that we want to understand, they can start to relax some of their defenses and some of the blame language because they get like, oh, you're actually trying to hear what's going on for me. I don't need to, you know, push so hard because there's some openness there. And then things can actually start to flow in the conversation. Right. Instead of the the person like, you know, hey, you're not listening. So they're they're reacting. And then the other person's like, what are you talking about? I'm listening, you know, so then that's reacting. Yeah. And then it's just and I love the the fact that this goes into your discussion of humanizing the other person because that can happen with a dear friend where you just get set on a different foot and then you need to go, oh, hold on. Hey, it sounds like you're not feeling heard right now, right? Where you're humanizing them. It's, it's about them. You're understanding their situation or humanizing a situation with a stranger or something else where you feel attacked or, or maybe a negative emotion and being able to humanize the other person and where they might be coming from, et cetera, to gain peace within ourselves. That's what it's about, right? Is our personal vibration. That's all we have. I'd love you to expand on the humanizing the other person aspect. Yeah, yeah. So, so much of of communication is about our connection with ourself and the ability to to be clear internally about what's happening for us. And when we when we're in the grip of some kind of reaction or strong emotion, often what happens is that sense of the projection onto the other person with kind of like an enemy image, right? We 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 reduce somebody to a specific moment in time, something that they said or did, and they become fixed often with a, with a negative perceptual filter of, of judgment or blame, you know, you are this way and you always will be. (laughs) And so the, the, the ability to humanize others comes in part from this, this genuine intention to understand as well as the perspective that comes out of humanistic psychology of human needs. So this was um, kind of proposed initially by Abraham Maslow, and then the, the work was continued by people like Carl Rogers and Marshall Rosenberg, which is this, this understanding of, of being human. It's a certain perspective or view on life that says that part of what makes us human is that we have certain fundamental needs, not just physiological needs for food and water and shelter and safety, but we have relational needs, right? We have needs 
for belonging, acceptance, for love and touch and understanding and empathy. And, and we understand today that these are actually um, necessary for health and, and thriving, right? That when, when human beings don't have strong bonds and friendships socially, it actually affects our hormones, uh, the functioning of our digestion and our body. So th- when, our, when our relational needs are not met, there is still a cost, there's still damage. And, and we have higher needs. You know, some might call them spiritual needs for things like meaning or growth or fulfillment or peace or transcendence. So the, so the key here, the key to humanizing other people is remembering this perspective that everything we do in life can be understood as an attempt to meet some deeper universal need. And if we can, if we can remember that and try to see this person, see the, the beauty underneath their choices that we disagree with. It's not that we say like anything anyone does is fine. This is not about like being permissive or condoning harm in any way, but it's actually recognizing that we can understand human behavior from another perspective. So I'd love to actually tell a short story about this um, to yeah. illust- illustrate the point that I that I tell in the book that I, I uh, discovered when I was doing research for the book. So um, there's a African-American author, uh, actor and musician by the name of Daryl Davis. So um, Daryl grew up overseas. Uh, so he wasn't exposed to the to the kind of racism that is so endemic in our, our culture and society here in the United States. And when he was 10, his family moved back to the United States, joins the Cub Scouts. They're marching down this small town in Massachusetts uh, with the Cub Scout troop for the first time, 10 years old, and people start throwing like rocks and bottles at him. And so his father had to explain to him, you know, what was happening. And he said at at the age of 10, you know, well, how can people hate me if they don't know me? Right. So this kind of planted a seed in him of this this passionate curiosity about how people work. How can people hate me if they don't know me? So later in life, he's playing a gig, piano player, playing a gig down in southern Maryland at an all white bar. And uh, after the gig, this uh, this this white guy comes up to him and says, you know, you know, you play pretty good for uh, for a black man, almost as good as Jerry Lee Lewis. So, <laughs> so for those who don't know jazz music, Jerry Lee Lewis is My a white, God. white piano player. So. So Daryl Davis kind of smiles and, and laughs a little bit and says, you know, that's that's kind of funny. I know Jerry Lee. He's a friend of mine. And actually, Jerry Lee learned to play the way he plays piano from African-American blues and boogie woogie musicians like myself. So this white guy's a little taken aback. He says, oh, I, 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 I didn't know that. You know, so that so they sit down, have a drink. They start talking. And Daryl, you know, Daryl's just curious. He's just wanting to connect on the human level and understand this guy. Turns out this guy's a member of the Ku Klux Klan. So, so over the Boy, course, he, he picked a day for that conversation, <laughs> right? So, but but check it out. So they actually develop a friendship, and over time, not only that, over time, just through Daryl's kind of patient, genuine, sincere desire to understand this man and and connect on the human level, to not see him as evil or wrong or even, you know as a quote, you know, racist, just to see his humanity. Over time, this guy starts to come around and recognizes, you know, you've changed my mind just by who you are. I I see that the ways I've been thinking about things are actually not accurate. And it's through his communication. 
it's through his response, which is so amazing, right. you know, about that. That's just a great illustration for all of us. It was really in his non-reaction and his curiosity and connecting on a human level yes. and willing to kind of let that go for a minute, you know, yeah. give it a couple minutes and turns out it turned into a conversation and a friendship. It's amazing. The, the story is actually even more amazing than that. It's uh, through this one relationship, Daryl decided to write a book about it and he starts interviewing other members of the KKK in this area and over the course of uh, a year or more, through these conversations, more than 200 people left the organization. The whole organization collapsed. M many of them gave Daryl their, uh, their hood and robes, all through the power of communication, conversation, and genuinely wanting to connect on the human level to see the humanity of the other person. The Grand Dragon um, uh asked Daryl to be the step the godfather of his daughter that's how far that this the this went to the power of of seeing the humanity in someone else right and 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 how you talk about the the you know a lot about this the evaluation and observation differences and wording things and uh humanizing and the importance of uh you know I would also love you to tell the story <clears throat> I believe it was with your father Right. The one uh, the story about the obesity situation. Was mm, that it? Because yeah. the reason I like that so much and because so a lot of us here, you know, come mm -hmm. to the show because we're either we're already health coaches and into this stuff and geeking out on it or we're trying to seek for answers because people have autoimmune disorders and they're like, where do I go? I need to heal myself. Right. Yeah. But a lot of us have come into this conundrum of seeing people around us, making choices that we know if we could impart on them, right? And so it's hard because, you know, as coaches, sometimes we learn to, well, the people of us that are coaches or even not, I've learned, you know, people have to come to you sometimes, right? And, right. and that conversation with your dad has a great ending because it brought you closer. It didn't necessarily do the job, but I, I, I would love that because the way that you phrase the conversation with him is mm -hmm. a way that I think a lot of people listening would like to approach their parents and family members who are dealing with, you know, they're watching their family member die. They're, they're wanting to help. Yeah. Uh, you can't, you can lead a horse to water, right? right but I right. really know all of us have been through not the way to say it. And then the, <laughs> way, and then the way that you ultimately had the conversation. So I'd love you to kind of go into that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for inviting the, the opportunity to share, to share that story. Um, I think I want to start Al, by just kind of saying and framing that, you know, family is the hardest. It's um, <laughs> so, you know, in, in my work, I, I teach communication and meditation. I teach meditation retreats. And one of the, one of the things we say sometimes, one of the jokes we have is if you think you're enlightened, go home and spend a week with your family. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So family is like graduate school for any of this stuff. So first, just that acknowledgement that, you know, they're the ones who are the closest to us. It's like that, that other, that other, you know, famous joke of like, how come your family is able to push your buttons so well? Well, because they installed them. So, um, so it took me many years of, of being really patient and working with these tools to, um, to be able to use them with, with my parents and, and with my family. And the, the story you're referring to that I tell is so, um, my, my dad, uh, experienced a certain amount of trauma in his life. He fought in two wars. He lost a brother in one of the wars 
and um, his marriage didn't work out. So, you know, later, later in life, things sort of started piling up and um, his coping mechanism was food or has been, has been food. And uh, so everyone in my family, my mom, my brother, myself, you know, we, we all tried as hard as we could. We tried everything, you know, getting him on diet plans, talking to him, uh, all of the ways that we will go to great lengths to try to help a loved one. And as you said, you know, ultimately it needs to come from the person. They actually have to want to change and be motivated. So, you know, at a certain point I was, I was just so, uh, disheartened and, and despairing and like not knowing what to do that, uh, I decided to just be completely honest and just open my heart to him and so on one visit home, uh, I, I sat down with him and said, you know, dad, I, I want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind for a while. That's that's really important to me. And uh, I want to know if you'd be willing to just listen for a little bit and hear what's what's on my mind and what's in my heart. And um, uh, he's always very, uh, very willing to engage and listen. He says, yeah, sure. You know, what's what's up? And so I told him, I said, you know, I. I see the way you're living. I, I see how little you exercise and, and how you eat. And I'm really worried. I'm really, really concerned about you. And you know how much I love you. I, I want you to be here for as long as possible. You know, I want, I want you to see me get married. I want you to see me do great things in my work. And I'm, I'm so scared that you're not going to be here. And I don't know what to do. I've tried everything and I'm at a loss and I, I feel frustrated and angry and, and despairing. And I just want to tell you what's going on for me so that you can understand where I'm at. What's it like for you to hear all this? And so there I, I ended there with that invitation, with that request, you know, to, to connect. And, uh, and he heard it. He really appreciated it. He said, you know, I, I hear you. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying. I, I don't know what to do. I feel stuck. He really owned that. Um, and we both shed some tears. And, you know, as I say in the book, at, at that particular time, his behaviors didn't change. But what happened was it brought us closer and it, it, it neutralized some of the tension. Right. There was that anger that I was living with. Exactly. You know, every time I would see him, I would I would feel under the surface this resentment and this anger because he wasn't taking care of himself and I felt so helpless. And so just being able to get that off my chest and know that he heard me and that he he took in the impact that his actions or his lack of action was having on me helped me to put to rest some of the anger and the resentment and the helplessness. And I'm actually really happy to say that today um, he is taking steps to be healthier. He's on a diet. He's, he's doing some walking. Um, so he's got a long ways to go. But, you know, I think that that conversation and other conversations like it over the years have, have helped him in some way to recognize that he has to want it. Yeah, no, I love, I just, everybody listening is probably like, oh, listen to this guy. So, <laughs> so mm -hmm. calm. The way that you expressed it from the heart to your dad and the tone of which you just shared with us is 
really coming from the heart and the truth of any of the resentment and anger anyway that you could have put into it. But the truth of that is really what you said. You're scared. You want him to be around. You don't want to lose your dad. And so I just love that because that's the way to have that conversation. And I'm sure people are going to like verbatim take notes on it. (laughs) like say the exact same thing. (laughs) But, but, you know, and also too, it's like, I, I had a similar conversation with a family member and after having it, I felt like you more at peace. Mm. I didn't, and then, and the other side of it too was that I enjoyed my time with them more because I was accepting of who they are, where they right. are, and I think because I was able to speak my true peace and truth about it, which was, "Hey, I'm worried. I love you. I," but you know what? Then you just have to go. Okay. I did what I did. Exactly. I can't continue to come at and attack this person. I've said what I've said. If they are an adult, if they're not going to get up. Right. <laughs> I mean, you, so then you enjoy them for them. And I'm sure right. you feel that way about your father. You were probably able to enjoy him for him without this backdrop yeah. of the like, oh, he's going for another Coca-Cola. Damn it. You know, or right, whatever. Right, right. Right. Yeah. We need to feel at peace inside and know that we have tried everything right there's a certain kind of like it's it's part of for myself it was like part of my own integrity right like i felt like i will never forgive myself right if i don't do everything in my power to help this person yes and try and try and try and then it's like at a certain point you're like yep okay i i did it you know i've tried and now there's that sense of can i just express my truth and and accept this is the way it is this is this is the choice they're making and isn't that kind of like it, I want to highlight that it kind of releases you then of this liability you once felt to have mm-hmm. to do something, right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I want to I want to bring in something else here. I was, I was really, I listened to a few of your episodes before coming on and um, just appreciating the, I know a little bit about paleo and, and ancestral health. I've had some of my own health issues over the years and, and the kind of, uh, philosophy and lifestyle of ancestral health has actually helped me a lot also. And I, I see a real connection between the perspective of ancestral health and and these communication tools in terms of getting back to something that's more innate and natural. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I kind of want to just highlight, like, I think there are a lot of barriers today to making these kinds of changes in our communication um, based on our, our culture and our society, which is which is fast paced in a completely unnatural way. It's disembodied. You know, everything is virtual in the future, cognitive, intellectual. So we become disconnected from our emotional intelligence, our body intelligence and the, the influence of technology and, and our devices is kind of in training our whole nervous system to this very artificial uh, expectation of instant gratification, short attention span, fragmented awareness, and conversation and human relationship, which couldn't be more innate, right? Like what is more natural than human connection? That's how we come into this world. And so to be able to have these kinds of meaningful conversations, goes against a lot of the conditions and and patterns of our society and culture today to be able to reclaim the space that's required to actually listen and speak to one another. That's a great connection, that primal connection of um, 
getting back to sort of the roots of our communication. And, you know, in the day and age of, I guess I want to link this, which is, you know, oh, texting. Oh, Mm -hmm. cop out. Cop out city, people. (laughs) Pick up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Text and email. All right. So, but this, it's almost like our multitasking society because we're on the iPhone, you know, with the wireless headset, you know, doing 500 chores. So we're, and we have a lot of remote friendships. So there's not a lot of Mm face-to-face eye contact and person conversations as much. Right. But then this leads into sort of, um, it kind of breeds more conflict avoidance, which is the, the mm-hmm. sort of, you have four habitual ways of responding to conflict. I'd love you to go through them. The first one is conflict avoidance. And so in a way, it's like what you just said, I feel breeds more opportunities for that, for those people to jump right into with the text and the email. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So maybe we can kind of start there and go yeah. forward with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, the, the conditions that we're living in that we're discussing are not conducive to actually being able to address our differences or conflicts. And I mean, we just just look around at the media or our government and the the inability to actually have a meaningful dialogue across differences. So when based on a lot of these pressures that we are under on a day-to-day basis, as well as our conditioning through our upbringing and the exposure of our culture and and the media, we tend to relate to conflict in one of four habitual ways. Um, So the one that you mentioned is conflict avoidance, which is that sense of anything but, right? I will do anything to pretend this isn't happening, get away from it. It'll just take care of itself. And there's often this fear that if if I actually talk about this, it'll make it worse. So we do anything we can to to get away from it. Assuming or hoping that it will fix itself, which often does, <laughs> it does, does not happen. It, yeah, uh, the conflict avoidance is almost like it in and of itself doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one. Another very, very common uh, response is the opposite, which is a- aggression. I, I call it competitive confrontation. And so this is what we see plastered all over the media and the news and in movies, which is that uh, sort of classic type A alpha, like attempting to deal with an issue through a lot of aggression, uh, this this um, exclusive focus on domination and uh, an unwillingness to have dialogue, listen, or even consider the other person's needs or point of view, right? And so that uh, response of, of aggression, competitive confrontation, even though it can produce results, right? Um, it comes at a cost. There's a bill to pay later in terms of the quality of the relationship, the level of trust or goodwill, um, or even the level of intrinsic motivation. When we get somebody to do something because we've forced them, there isn't that sense of genuine desire inside. And then the results often suffer. Uh, the next one is passivity. Um, which is which is kind of flipping over to the other extreme. So instead of like, I'm going to get my way no matter what, we just give up. So this is different from conflict avoidance because we're actually abandoning ourselves. We're acquiescing. We're... we're uh, People-pleasing. Re- yeah, people-pleasing, appeasing. We are relinquishing our own truth and our own needs in the hopes that it kind of like if I disappear... If I don't want anything or need anything, everything's going to be okay. It'll be harmonious and we'll all just get along. And 
this too, you know, comes at a cost often in our own well-being. It can eat away at us inside. And then sometimes over time, the pressure and resentment builds up and then we end up exploding anyway in the end. And then the, the last of these is often the trickiest, which is passive aggression. Mm-hmm. That's right, my is, least favorite character <laughs> trait in any person. Is which one. is this, this kind of like we pretend on the surface that everything is okay, all the while expressing some kind of displeasure or hostility. We're sending the message that I don't like you or there's something wrong, but I won't actually talk about it. Can you give some examples, though? Because you give the perfect examples in the book of passive aggressive behavior, what that can look like. So I'd love you to kind of expand on that for a minute so we can wrap our brains around this one. Yeah, so so with, with passive aggression... Um, you know, if it's like the roommate situation, we might clean everything up in the kitchen except our roommate's dishes, like leaving them in plain view as if to say, like, come on, man, clean up after yourself. Um, or in a professional relationship, um, we might agree to do something and then forget or or do it so poorly that the other person's unlikely to ask or or kind of like intentionally sort of create a problem in it. Or in an intimate relationship, like we might agree to do something, but then pout and sulk or seethe, right, to show that we really don't want to do it. And so these are all ways that we are indirectly expressing our unmet needs to the other person. And I I want to say that like each of these behaviors, um, they're not the enemy. Like these are ways that we've learned to get by because we didn't have any better options, and so it's important to actually recognize like, okay, this has served me for a certain period of time, but now that I'm learning other perspectives and hopefully new tools, I have other options. And so we can we can start to examine like, okay, what's what's underneath this? What am I believing here? Like with passive aggression, we often believe, you know, no one cares about what I want, or if I try to talk about this, it's not going to make a difference, you know, or I don't have a choice. I don't have any power here. So there are beliefs underneath each of these um, each of these strategies or behaviors that drive them, and often one part of transforming them is understanding what the beliefs are, so that we start to have we can change those, we can actually see things in a different way. I love that, yeah, and it's very interesting because those two words seem opposite: passive and aggressive. Mm-hmm. But your your examples are perfect. It shows you how you can be sort of on the attack, but in a very subtle, passive way. Um, <clears throat> no, those are all really interesting. Um, yeah, you talk a lot about the importance of intention. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can elaborate a little bit more on that. Um, you're not necessarily speaking of manifesting something out of the ether, but can you talk about how, how you, the importance of intention? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Intention is the, the, the quality of our mind or heart behind what we do or say. It's not always conscious, but it's like where we're coming from inside. And um, what's so important about intention is that it's what's shaping our nonverbal communication, the, our tone of voice, our body language, our gestures. All of that is animated by our deeper intentions, which other people can pick up on. So our default training habitually, most of us uh, through our culture, when there is any kind of a difference or a conflict, is is to attack, defend, blame, judge, criticize. 
And this is, this is, those intentions come from a certain assumption, a certain view about difference and conflict, which is there for good reason, but based on life experience, we have, we live in a, in a time and a culture where the view is when there's a difference, someone wins and someone loses. This is an either or kind of scenario. And if that's the case, I know which side I want to be on. And so that's, if that's how we are viewing things from this sense of separation and scarcity, oh, there's only enough for one of us. And so I know I'm going to dog for what I want and I'm going to push and blame and criticize and judge and, you know, get my arguments in a line until I can assure that either myself or my family or my community gets what they, what they need. And so the shift here, which from my perspective and many of my colleagues' perspective, again, is a shift back to something more innate and natural for us as human beings, is a shift to collaboration, to recognizing that part of being human is working together, right? So our ancestors were only able to survive by working together, by collaborating. So, but we have over the course of history, you know, as as the, as a human civilization has become industrialized, and as we have become more separated from the earth and um, from the knowledge of of how to live uh, in 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 line with the environment and with one another, we've we've forgotten how to work together, how to actually collaborate and and keep in mind not just what I want, but what you want, and what's good for the group, for the society, for the larger community. So we bring in a different perspective that says both and, win-win. So maybe there's something I could learn here. Maybe we could work together. Can we be creative? And this brings forth different kinds of intentions. The intention to understand, to get curious, to work together, to listen, to care. And so these kinds of intentions are transformative. They transform how we show up in the conversation and they transform the whole tone, the whole atmosphere of, of the communication that we're having because other people feel it. They pick up on it when we are genuine and sincere and where we're coming from and wanting to work together. Absolutely. Really. So, so well put. I know you've worked with so many people. You've heard probably a million different stories and mm-hmm. I'm sure even worked with couples or, you know, business uh, execs. Um, anything that comes to mind that were some really Trans, interesting, like 180 transformations in a relationship or a scenario that, that, you know, stand out to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, so one story, um, this is not a story from, from my, per, that, that I personally was involved with, but I think it really illustrates the power of these skills in, in a way that's so relevant to us in society today. Um, there was a, a group of women that met at a reproductive rights demonstration in, in Boston. And um, there's women from two different sides of the debate, from pro-life and pro-choice. Kind of one of them made, made a joke to the other at the demonstration, like, you know, we are never going to get anywhere just yelling at each other like this across the picket line. So they decided to get together and start to actually dialogue and have conversation and try to understand one another. And so they met for several months um, in this small group, getting to know one another, really exploring their views and their um, their deeper beliefs and values. They got to know each other's families. And in the end, what's interesting is none of them actually changed their beliefs. 
There wasn't this, you know, like moment of aha, seeing the light, I'm wrong and you're right. But what happened was when the women from the pro-life group heard that someone was planning on coming to Boston to bomb an abortion clinic, they got together and talked about it. And then they sent a message back through the network that said, you are not welcome in our community. Don't come. They were not. They're eliminating that violent. They're like, exactly. you know, we don't want the violence. In exactly. Our space. Yeah. We can disagree, but let's not use violence to to advance our agenda. And I, I see that again and again in different ways. Violence is not always physical. It's sometimes verbal. Uh, cutting off a relationship, right? Being being unwilling to engage is a form of violence. It's some of the most painful things we experience when somebody says. I won't have contact with you anymore. And so using these tools helps us to to see one another from a different perspective and to start to hear one another so that so that we can understand each other and and begin to develop uh, develop the space to actually work together. So, you know, I, I've been doing some work in the medical field, training, you know, doctors and um, uh, nurses, people who work at community health clinics in, in some of these tools. And being able to have conversations between, you know, like managers and staffs around simple things like not getting status reports in on time and and being able to take the conversation out of the of the power play and the war between I need your report. I'm not going to do it. The kind of you know continual struggle that was going on and actually inviting both sides to get curious about why is the status report so important to the manager? Well, what purpose is it serving? Do your do your employees actually know that? And then for the employee, and then for the for the manager to understand, do you know why they're not turning them in? Do you know what's getting in the way? Have you have you asked? Right? What's what's getting in the way of turning in your report? I'd like to understand. Do you not have the time because you're prioritizing other tasks? Do you not see value in them so you forget to, to do it or choose not to? And so having the conversation on that level, again, it opens the space to actually work together. So many great tools in your book for just interpersonal or career, family, all of these things are applicable. Um, tell us, how can we benefit from you? I know that you you do so many different workshops and, and lead retreats. Tell us, how can we benefit from your work or benefit from you one-on-one or, or face-to-face? Yeah, great. Thanks, Al. So, um the best way to uh, learn about my work is through my website, orangejsofer.com, or on my social media, uh, also at orangejsofer. Um, and if folks want to learn more or uh, stay in touch and get special invitations to free events and articles that I'm publishing, my email list is the best way to do that. And um, I give away a free guided meditation series and a short ebook when people subscribe. And they can do that right on my website, Warren J. Sofer, or even right from their cell phone. Uh, so the way to do it is to send a text message to the number 44222 with one word in it. If you put the word guided, like guided meditation, just that one word guided to 44222, it'll ask you for your email address and walk you through the steps. Can't be easier than that. And we will put all of the links to connect with you in the show notes. Is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with today? Yeah, thank you. You know, I, I think the one thing that I'd like to say that we didn't did, we didn't really fully articulate, if it's not clear 
from our conversation is that, you know, communication is so central to our lives. We're doing it all the time, all day, uh, at home, at work, with friends. It's one of the most powerful and accessible levers for change. So, you know, I know that the folks in your community who listen to this podcast are interested in transformation and well-being. And so if that's your deal, if that's what you're about, um, you know, just take one thing that you've heard from our conversation today and apply it. Use it every day until it becomes the new norm and you will start to see changes in your relationships. That's great. And I mean, even though a lot of us are effective communicators, and even if you think you're one like I consider, you you, you can never stop learning. There's always something to be re-reminded about. And that's, yeah. you know, what your book does. It's new and re-reminders. Yeah. <laughs> Say what you mean. And yes, that is absolutely what we all want, clarity. And frankly, you know, in general, I've said this before, but you know, people who say what they mean and, and mean what they say are often more trusted because it is really the most authentic. And I think like you mentioned before, right, of feeling initially out of integrity, but before you then spoke to your father and then you felt like that was really out of integrity, right? Because it's the truth. So right. the more transparency and the more we can um, get clear with our communication, the better. Thank you so much for for sharing your work with us and um i hope everyone checks out your book and we look forward to having you back on thanks so much al it's been great to hang out and chat hi brad kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message i want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time it's called adaptogenic calm used to be called primal calm and the key ingredient in this formula is called phosphatidylserine or ps and this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind, we're constantly triggering the fight or flight mode in modern life. And when people say, hey, you should take a chill pill, this really is a chill pill. Because when you consume an appropriate amount of phosphatidylserine and the other supportive ingredients that have been known to have a calming effect on the central nervous system, things like magnesium, L-theanine, magnolia bark, and rhodiola, you will get a calming effect. It's not like a stimulant product that makes you feel more energy and have a better workout but instead this sort of takes the edge off of that stress buzz where you feel that foggy brain function maybe a little shaky and finally fried at the end of a busy stressful day this stuff will help you clear your bloodstream from those catabolic stress hormones before they can do the damage so i like to take significant quantities of it in and around stressful events such as jet travel or in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.